Welcome back to the Mark Claire Show. With me today, she is returning. She was here just about a month or so ago talking about the Tavistock Institute. Well, we didn't finish that conversation because there's so much to have. So I brought her back from the Courtney Turner program. She is Courtney Turner. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I've- why, of course. Lots to talk about. <laughs> There's lots to talk about. Like like we said last week, I think we could have its own. I'm surprised. Does it actually, I'd be surprised if they wasn't actually. Do, do you know if the current Tavistock Institute has their own podcast? <laughs> you know, I don't think they do, but the people involved in it do a lot of podcasting. They do conferences constantly and they do, do a lot of podcasting. There is I, a... There is Tavistock Inside the Gender Clinic podcast, but that's a, that looks like a series. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They're very focused on the uh, gender affirming stuff. Uh, that's kind of what like like blew the whistle on them, I guess. Like what kind of blew mm. the lid so that people started to become aware of them. I think before that, they were kind of just like the shadow think tank that most people had never heard of, but then they got sued. Uh, for the whole transgender scandal. I actually have somebody coming on my show next week who uh, was a social worker in the UK. And he was talking about how, like, they're they're pretty much forcing uh, you to impose these uh, gender-affirming type of mindset onto the kids. Yeah. That was a lawsuit in the, in the UK? Yeah. The, the, trans, the, uh, the Tavistock Clinic got sued. A bunch of parents like rose up and sued the clinic. In They're like, hey, we sent our kid because to you because he was sad, and he came back a different gender. So, uh, right, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, they they weren't too happy about that, and that was in 2020 it's when oh, that God. all went down. Yeah, so it was kind of then that people started to become aware of Tavistock. I think before that, most people had never heard of it. Right. So, I, I actually, I was just on uh, ben, Benjamin Boyce's podcast and he was, uh, he covers a lot of the trans stuff. And he said to me, oh, you, the, the mental health clinic. And uh, I said, well, because uh, I was talking about the history of it, that it was the propaganda bureau. And like, how like, much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, I know. And he was like, wait, you're telling me that the, tra- the mental health clinic is a propaganda bureau? I'm like, yeah, that's how it started. <laughs> Wait till you find out that's what it's always been. All right. Yeah, but, and but, that's what it still is. <laughs> for uh, If you are just tuning in and you didn't catch our previous episode on Tavistock, it is called The Tentacles of Tavistock part, uh, part One. This is Part Two. It's just about five or six episodes back in your podcast feed. So I highly recommend if you didn't catch that episode of The Mark Claire Show, go back check it out and then come right back here. And because we're going to basically pick up essentially where we left off there. But uh, in that episode, you went through the whole history of Tavistock. And really by that, I mean almost everything leading up to it. You know, all the different organizations, um, the different uh, psychiatric groups, like the psychiatric uh, doctors, theories, whatever you want to call it, all seemingly coming together uh, and passing through in some way in this one institute. But today we're going to look a little bit more about how it's affecting society today. And obviously like a big one we just started off with, we don't even necessarily need to go in order. We could, we could actually just start here uh, yeah. since it is such a big issue today is this trans stuff. And actually I, yeah. I it was just a couple of weeks ago I heard some story and, and I heard something about the Tavistock Clinic. I was like, oh, Oh, well, that's obviously the same guys. Because uh, I only recently became aware of the whole the fact that they are such a huge part of the transgender push, especially over in the UK. So maybe you can detail a little bit more about what they've been doing over there. And we'll we'll try to connect some dots along the way. Yeah. So, I mean, they really are a uh, propaganda bureau. And that is, you know, as we covered last time, that's what they started off as. And it was because the Germany had a propaganda agency. And so under the guise of, quote unquote, defense, 
they started a British propaganda bureau and the purpose was to garner acquiescence from the American populace as well as the British populace to engage in World War One on the side of the Brits. And that's kind of, they've been involved in, you know, socially engineering the masses and culture creation pretty much from the inception. Like one of the very first things that they did was they had a meeting with the 25 literary authors and, you know, famous writers of the time to create propaganda prof uh, like pamphlets and books all about war and why we should engage in war. And so now they're very involved in this whole transgender Agenda. I mean, I would argue that it is an agenda. And personally, I think it's a huge part of the transhumanist agenda. And when you look at what Tavistock is doing right now, they're, they're very involved in a lot of that. And that seems not to be new. Apparently, a lot of the members of Tavistock, uh, you know, were decades ago going to cybernetics meetings. So I, you know, I talk about how cybernetics, a lot of people are very concerned about, I mean, Elon just did his first experiment with the Neuralink and they're worried about chips. Greg Reese just did a great report all about, uh, you know, the uh, luciferase and the glowing and how even people who have shedding uh, are uh, glowing. Wait, what's the, what's the luciferase? I so, that uh, luciferase. <laughs> Luciferase. I can't let that word just pass me by casually and not, not dig in further. <laughs> it's just a chemical, but it's a, used a lot of times in um, things to make things glow. It's so luciferase? It's called <laughs> luciferase. And this was a huge part of like a lot of the conspiracy theorists back in 2020 were going nuts because there was luciferase in uh, the injections. And so, of course, you know, the... And is that part confirmed? Is that that there... Yes, luciferase is in the. It feels a little too on the nose, like maybe. <laughs> I, if that's kind of feels to me, but I mean, uh, you know, revelation of the method, maybe I don't know. <laughs> um, it does seem a little on the nose, but they argue that it's not what we think it is, and you know, that's just the name. It's not you know luciferian or anything, and there's nothing uh, nefarious about it. It's not bad for you or anything like that. It's just uh, it's it, it is too. But it, 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 they use luciferase even in like those markers that glow. You know, it's really just uh, so like if you inject it, it would and you put it under one of those uh, like lights, you know, like a glow light to detect. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not yeah, using yeah, the right yeah. word, but then you then you'll see it. It'll come up. And so, yeah. So, I mean, of course, the theory was that this was part of the uh, mark of the beast, if you will. It was so that they could detect who had been jabbed and who hadn't. Um, that part I can't speak to. I mean, of course, we can continue to conjecture and a lot more is coming out that seems to point in that direction. But yeah, but no, the luciferase has been confirmed. Obviously, we can't confirm that it's in, there seem to be various batches and different things in different batches. And I do think that there were a lot of uh, saline, a lot of uh, control, if you will, controlled batches. <laughs> so, and there, I think Moderna did that whole, like, how bad is your batch? So we know there are different things than different ones, but, but anyhow, yeah, they, so people are very concerned about that type of uh, trans, you know, transhumanism where, you know, it's a machine, uh, human kind of uh, conversion, bio-digital convergence and uh, a literal merging with machines. But I think people forget about cybernetics, which, uh, you know, I think has been well underway for a very long time. And uh, it's because our brain chemistry, our neurology has already changed so much just mm -hmm. by all of the screen time. And now with social media and the algorithms feeding us, 
you know, we the way we function, the way we think, the way we process, all of that, uh, the way we interact with, even with each other has already changed. So that's cybernetics. And a lot of these people were, you know, going to the early cybernetics meetings. So I, I've i seen some of their stuff on uh, so- social media and they seem to put things up and it's almost like feelers because that's what they do, right? The social scientists are constantly testing behavior and they do a lot of uh, kind of what, what Edward Bernays called back then uh, manufacturing consent. That's what he called a polling. You know, it was a, it was opinion making, not a, not really sampling or surveying. So I, I think that's what they do. They kind of test and see the response, engage. But they did one I had posted a while ago, and it was all about um, like a. It was some kind of symposium on uh, AI and uh, neurological changes. And uh, they were doing another one kind of on social media and like the impact, uh, the human impact of that. So I think they're very much moving that direction. They deleted a bunch of these, by the way. Um, but I have, I still have the screenshot of one of them, but a lot of them have been deleted. You know, you'll see they post it and got like three likes on it or, you know, it's, like, oh, uh, this didn't go over well. Got ratio. Yeah, exactly. And they probably say, "Oh, uh, our intern just got in there and he posted that you know weird satanic transhuman meme." Don't don't worry about him. But really, they're just like, "Oh, let's see if let's see how this goes over." No, okay, maybe in a few years. We'll try that yeah, one. right, right. <laughs> we'll we'll pause on that and then we'll 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 come back and revisit. So it is a, a like logical this. conclusion, I suppose. If you're gonna, if your goal is transhumanism, your goal is sort of like. You know, ending humanity for many people and perhaps extending it for a certain set of people, uh, mm-hmm. then it certainly makes sense that a, a natural transition, so to speak, is from the transgender movement. Because if you're going to tell people, well, you know, if you feel different in your body, if you feel like you feel a little off today, maybe it's actually because yeah. you're the wrong gender. And so we can just change that. And if we can change that, why stop there? Because guess what? We exactly. have all this other technology. So why not put this chip in your brain and maybe, the, heck, maybe instead of turning your gender, we can just put the chip in your brain and change how your brain thinks. You know, maybe exactly. Maybe that's easier. Exactly. Well, and I think it's also like there's it's an, a smoother transition if people don't feel an attachment to biology. So you know, if you don't, if you blur the boundaries of what does it mean to be human, right? If it, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be woman? Then you know, okay, so you can be anything. There's no, it's non-binary or whatever it is, then it's a a more seamless kind of transition to, okay, so we merge with machines and, you know, what what difference does it make? And yeah, Uh, (laughs) I think that's kind of, I think there's even a mimetic kind of a, you know, right. Oftentimes they don't say transgender, they just say trans. Hmm. So wait till they just stop saying transhuman and they just say trans. Right. And it just applies to everything. It applies to all the ways we're just going to go in and and tweak around in there. Yes. So these, I mean, but these are the same people and they've been really hard at work at shaping our perceptions, shaping our uh, views of the world, uh, testing us to see how they can shape us and manipulate us and uh, the the implications of uh, psychological warfare, essentially. That's really what it is. It's all about psychological warfare. And so that's part of why they're so invested in the culture, because that's how they can really effectively um, use psyops through the culture. Sure. And and speaking 
on the culture, if you're going to influence the culture, you need to have influential people. And maybe today, nowadays, uh, maybe there are a lot of the influences on, you know, Instagram and YouTube and whatnot. At least maybe, maybe I just like to think so. I don't know. But uh, they, uh, you know, back then, most of the influence or I, I don't know, maybe now at this point, I, I am so chicken and, and egg about everything. Like I, I used to just even say, oh, they, they, they infiltrated the music industry in order to prop up certain narratives or whatnot. Now I'm now I just wonder, does the music industry only exist because of this in the first place? Like, is it, is it just like we have music because they figured out it's a way that they can manipulate us. Now I'm, I've probably gone too far and always, always questioning everything, but where does, where does their entrance into like, I guess the pop culture uh, sort of, uh, you know, where does that, where does that begin? Does it begin with like the British music scene or can we go back before that? Oh, I would argue it goes oh, way, oh, we, yeah, we did way. The, we did discuss the work of the fiction actually last time. I think that was one of the last things. Yeah, like, I mean it goes way and back, and honestly, it doesn't even start with Tavistock. I mean, like they they were doing this in ancient Greece. You right, know, right, they were right. using it, right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that the the idea of using entertainment and using um, like pop figures or popular figures for the purposes of you know culture creation. I think that yeah, that definitely goes back to. I think probably the beginning of time, but the ancient Greeks were really good at it. You know, I mean, that's part of where we got the Olympics, uh, you know, and the the Roman bread and circuses. So yeah, this has definitely been in the works for a really long time, but they, but Tavistock was definitely instrumental in the whole counter culture amusement movement, which I think is what a lot of people are thinking of when they think about, um, the, the music infiltration, but I, I would argue it definitely went way before that. Was so. was Tavistock? Because I've recently uh, been reading Weird Scenes in the Valley, and that's really about how the CIA sort of um, over in the the Los Angeles uh, Laurel Canyon end of things, and sort of all the the rise of the hippie movement there, when all of these hippies just happen to be the sons and daughters, and you know ne- <laughs> nieces and nephews of uh, high level military intelligence and uh, people involved in psychological operations and whatnot. Uh, is is that a direct extension of Tavistock, or are they just kind of, were they kind of like sister movements of each other? Oh yeah, and. And Tavistock had a lot of direct contact with uh, both the OSS and the CIA. You know, first the OSS, then the CIA, also MI6. Um, you know, really that whole five eyes, they they work with Tavistock. Rand Institute, which is basically like a psychological warfare uh, think tank, right? They work very closely with Tavistock. Uh, Stanford Research Institute. Also, another uh, very involved in a lot of uh, military projects, and they uh, it was under Stanford Research Institute that Changing Im- Images of Man was written. That document was uh, Joseph Campbell, and that that was a that was very much Tavistock propaganda. It was all about the age of Aquarius, and you know, essentially, I mean, that's a it's a pretty long document. I, I actually think I'm going to do a show just covering that because <laughs> there's so much in it, and we're we're seeing so much of it play out now. Um, but it was the idea that you know astronomers think that uh, we're going to move into the age of Pisces, and from Pisces, then we it's the end of the Christ age, and so this is. Of course, you know, the rise of kind of like the new age type of philosophies and religions. And yeah, so that was all under Tavistock through Stanford Research. Um, And then, uh, yeah, I don't know, they're all of, uh, but they're very, very interconnected. Let's touch on some of the the big ones, some of the the, the favorites out here. I mean, like Beatles, at least maybe on the British side, we can start. Beatles, Rolling Stones, like how, maybe you can describe a little bit like... How does this start? Are they, is it like, 
is it a straight recruitment from the beginning kind of thing where the like there's an idea and like we're gonna we're gonna make some propaganda we're gonna you know try to move things a certain way so let's go find some musicians and and prop them up or is it like there's these you know maybe legit sort of like you know Brits who get together form a band they get popular they're pretty good and then these guys come in and they're like hey you want to join with our label? Hey, we got a producer. Hey, and then do they do they influence the people already there? And maybe it's again sort of a chicken and egg thing because the end result is kind of the same. But I'm, but how do you think this whole thing kind of like how does it so start? From I the honestly, I feel like I have to do more research on all of it, and I'll tell you why. It's because I see a lot of like inferences, but I've yet to find very hard evidence. You know, like I the Rolling Stones or. Uh, were mastered by Order of Malta by the name of Prince Rupert Lowenstein, who sponsored Sympathy for a Devil track back in 1968. And then they say the prince was also a a member of the very powerful sacred military Constantinian Order of St. George. But I don't, how do they know that? Like, this is just one example. Um, I mean, I've heard over and over again that Adorno was, uh, who's, you know, a philosopher from the Frankfurt School, that he wrote the Beatles lyrics. I don't doubt that that's true. It's entirely possible. It definitely does seem like there was some sort of a uh, messaging coming from uh, Frankfurt School, Tavistock. I mean, Frankfurt School and Tavistock worked very, I mean, it was mostly the same philosophers and psychologists. There were a lot of overlap and convergence through them. Um, and it makes perfect sense. And I can see why they would use something like the Beatles to create, a, you know, a, a major psyop to be able to control the masses. But I don't, I haven't found anything that actually shows that Adorno wrote the lyrics. Like, I just don't know where the evidence is coming from. So, I don't know. That's a the. I know that Eustace Mullis says it. I he's he's an author. I know John, Dr. John Coleman says it. Uh, Dr. John Coleman has no sources though, so like I think we talked about this last time. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah. So he's just you know he was a former MI6, and so a lot of it is coming from his you know in, independent sources that directly or coming from libraries that he has access to that have redacted material, so he can't take pictures you can't cite any of his work um that's not to say that it's not true i just i just haven't found anything that proves it <laughs> yeah i mean even with the whole laurel canyon scene and everybody mm-hmm. coming up there um yeah th- there's a lot of like there's so many connections but there's not as much i don't think there's that much evidence in the traditional sense of we have the document of the guy that said hi i am going to uh prop up jim morrison as the doors and there's not like that direct evidence but there is a a, a insane amount of circumstantial connections to the point that it, oh, yeah. it, you, would, you would have to just be blind to say okay there's clearly an influence here and these clearly can't be coincidences at this level um, no do you, do you know much about, you know, if there's any, con- I, don't, I don't think there is, but if there's any connections between the Beatles themselves or the Rolling Stones themselves and any of the intelligence agencies through their families? Because there is, there just is galore on, on the Laurel Canyon side of things. Uh, almost, like I said, almost literally right. every, which is funny because some of them, so many of them are anti-war, peace and love hippies. Oh yeah. But their family are actually the ones literally, literally putting on the wars it's it's well it's funny. but that, that was one of Tavistock's slogans right the peace war operation mm-hmm. so we're going to achieve peace through war <laughs> so that was literally a Tavistock campaign um i i don't know i thought lennon john lennon might have had some uh some ties 
some intelligence ties. But I, that I don't know for sure. Yeah, I think he may have. I know that, you know, so when you talk about direct evidence, things like the uh, the Grateful Dead and the whole drug movement, and we have direct kind of contact ties to Tavistock. Mm-hmm. You know, Eric Trist's son, Alan Trist, was the producer for Grateful Dead. Alan Trist was one of the forerunner psychologists for Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. And uh, his son was then the producer for the Grateful Dead. And then you have all of the LSD uh, experiments that were done. Uh, of course, that connection comes from L.D. Lang, who was a, a director of Tavistock. Um, and then he met Bateson. I have the whole connection here. And Bateson was the daughter. He, Catherine Bateson was the daughter of, uh, was it Margaret Mead? And uh, let me find it exactly. But I don't want to get this. And but the, he was also involved. The father was also involved in uh, the LSD experiments, and they that they did do as a mass kind of a test on the the population to see how people would. Okay, here it is. Nineteen fifty six. Artie Lang was appointed a senior registrar at the Tavistock Clinic in nineteen fifty six. Three years after he left the British Army psychiatric unit, so he had direct ties to. Most of Tavistock was about, you know, psychological warfare research. That was how they began. So um, he began experimenting with LSD in 1960 and then 1962 when he became a family therapist at the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. He also met Gregory Bateson. While visiting the U.S., Bateson had been with the Office of Strategic Services. So that's the OSS, forerunner CIA. And then he led the MK Ultra Hallucinogen LSD Project. Bateson and Margaret Mead's mother... Uh, Catherine Basin, along with New Ager uh, Jean Houston, would later help Hillary other right, write the It Takes a Village. Remember that? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was in... 19- quite a resume. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in 1964, Lang met LSD proponent Timothy Leary in New York and also author Transcendental Experience in Relation to Psychosis. So... So there's a direct kind of uh, connection there for sure. And it was mostly about the LSD experiments and seeing how that impacted the masses. Do you, do you think that is the, the greater purpose behind at least maybe we can separate some of these. I mean, the, the, I'd think that the Grateful Dead and like fish and bands like that are a certain yeah. type of band who are quite literally, I mean, people don't go to those shows without psychedelics. I mean, so is, is that the purpose of groups like that to just outwardly promote? I mean, I mean, the Grateful Dead are the most on the nose, but I mean, even yeah. if we look at, you know, uh, some Beatles songs, Lucy in the sky with diamonds, pretty clear, cl- pretty clear what they're being referenced there is, is that the overall reason for at least, at least some of these bands I have to think is, is the reason. Yeah. A huge part of it was to do, uh, testing, experimenting on the masses to see what the impact of these drugs would be uh, and how they could, you know, permeate through the culture. I I think it was multifaceted. They were trying to, I know they were trying to see what the results of LSD would be. They were searching for what they called a truth drug. Um, So, yeah, it's in 1960, the psychedelic counterculture or or originated with Sandoz AG, an asset of S.G. Warburg and co. One of the, you know, the Federal Reserve uh, yeah, Act founders, right? Yeah, I recognize that name from, uh, from uh, uh, G. Edward Griffin's work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, so they developed LSD 
Jane Paul Warburg, who is the son of Paul Warburg, who had written the Federal Reserve Act in 1910 and sponsored the Nazi eugenics program. He financed a subsidiary of the Tavistock Institute in the United States, and that was called the Institute for Policy Studies. And their director yeah, was... Can, that's the most boring institute name I've ever heard. <laughs> most of them are, especially yeah, the ones that hear. Um, I, I guess they're not trying to say like, you know, they they don't want to be like institute for, uh, you know, m messing with your kids on drugs or anything like that. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, not that. Uh, they really didn't want much attention. Uh, it really wasn't until recently that there was any attention on them. Mm -hmm. um, to set up the, yeah, CIA... To set up, Mark Ruskin was appointed to National Security Council. Jane Paul Warburg set up a CIA program to surreptitiously experiment with LSD on human guinea pigs, some some of whom committed suicide. And that program uh, was the MK Ultra version was supervised, obviously, by Gottlieb. Um, yeah, good. I always yeah. wonder too, like with, and I think this is very much just a speculatory area uh, for for both of us. But I, I always wonder about the artists themselves and and their like, because a, a lot of these kids are like, you know, they're in their late teens, early twenties when they're starting to get into the music scene. And I just wonder how it works. You know, is it is it like, oh, Jim Morrison's dad? Hey, you have a kid. We're looking to do a we're looking to do a, a, a rock revolution, and and we're looking to do some propaganda with music. Can we use your kid for that? Or you know, or is it is the is it like, or I mean, are they given permission? Are they like handing the child over to become a star of some kind for this nefarious purpose? Or is it or is it like Jim Morrison gets into music and they're like, hey, he's I mean, I just this is the stuff that kind of goes through my mind of how it. How how plotted out it is all from A to B, or is it just, you know, a case of, well, you know, we know these guys, we may as well use their kids. We already got them in our loop. Why why, why recruit random kids? <laughs> I think it's a combination. Uh, you know, you you do have a lot of times where it, it's kept in the family. And they, we know this from like studies like Project Monarch, right? Where they do this intergenerational trauma, in utero trauma, uh, and they intentionally create dissociative personalities. What and a the, lot of the reasons... What is the in utero trauma? So while they're in the womb. So while the mom is pregnant, they'll, they'll traumatize uh, the mother to, intentionally to impact the, the child um, wow. because it makes them more susceptible to mind control. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty dark. Yeah. Wow. That's the darkest thing I've heard in a while, I think. And that, that's saying a lot. Wow. So, but is this a situation where you're saying it's generational? So are these mothers or maybe the fathers sort of like willing participants in the sense that they're, maybe they're just saying, hey, honey, we're going to bring you in for some tests. Well, it's both. So we know from Project Monarch. So I'm specifically talking about Project Monarch right now, which uh, I, I honestly don't think that MKUltra could have occurred without uh, the the ground being, you know, laid by Tavistock. Tavistock really did like, and so many of the same doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists were involved in the MKUltra experiments. So there was a lot of crossover, but a lot of the research, preliminary research that was done through Tavistock on like, trauma-based mind control, uh, you know, what they call shell shock therapy, post-traumatic stress therapy, uh, you know, experiments were what were you later utilized and expounded on in order to do these MKUltra studies. Um, I think they just, the, the technology advanced with the MKUltra studies, uh, the, you know, the medicalization of it 
uh, increased, whereas a, a lot of the studies that were done under Tavistock were more psychology-based and less psych- less drugs and less, uh, you know, medical experimentation, device experimentation, if you will. But uh, the, although they had some of that as well um, in Tavistock. But I, we know from Project Monarch that they were trying to, the, what they were trying to uh, figure out was the susceptibility of someone to trauma. So it really was about mind-based, trauma-based mind control. And so they, they know that somebody who has been severely traumatized is much more susceptible to mind control. And I think this has been extrapolated onto the masses. And a, a really good example would be something like COVID. I do think that that was a trauma-based mind control type. And it comes out of a lot of these Tavistock uh, experiments because so Tavistock was all about group research. So you had, uh, you know, like uh, Rawlings-Reese and Kurt Lewin. Kurt Lewin actually started the uh, research center for group dynamics. Um, and uh, Wilfred Bayan, it was all about group dynamics. Wilfred Bayan's work got continued in the United States uh, through A.K. Rice. Uh, the Rice Institute in the United States, it was like, I think, 1957. I have to look up the exact date, but somewhere around there. Uh, where they started that in the United States. And that's essentially like a, a American offshoot of Tavistock. And it's literally doing the same work. It's a, the extension of Wilfred Bynes' work, who was very seminal to Tavistock. But it's all about group dynamics and figuring out how people's psychology changes in groups and how they can use groups to uh, pit people against each other. And uh, they even have, you know, like how we have now sensitivity training, quote unquote, <laughs> in corporations, a lot of, uh, you know, organizational psychology, um, a lot of uh, corporate dynamics. I think the whole notion of public-private partnership, uh, corporatocracy, all of that comes out of Tavistock research and Tavistock development. They they really laid the groundwork for all of that. Um, but so it was all of these different, you know, experiments that they were doing and they realized that they could get people to, you know, fight against each other. This, oh, yeah, what I was saying about the sensitivity training, uh, you know, that was it was uh, Frederick Emery. I think that it was his work. Uh, and, and they literally called it brainwashing. So what we now have a sensitivity training in corporations, which, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, being Maybe nice. Maybe it was supposed to, to sound nicer than it does to us now. It's like, uh, you know, there we want to clean their brain. Let's just call it brainwashing. It's people like well, it. Yeah. Back then, everything was called hygiene. Mm-hmm. And hygiene really was just code for eugenics. <laughs> But it was. I mean, they had mental hygiene. They had racial hygiene. They had a uh, uh, what was the other one? They had a whole bunch of like hygiene organizations. But it was really just eugenics. That's that's what hygiene is code for. Um, but yeah, I don't know. They. I think they were just more honest back then. I mean, you you know, Bernays called the uh, polling. You know, uh, like you know, manufacturing consent. Right, right. It basically told you what it was, and now, now we have all these euphemisms. They changed the, the names of everything. Um, but yeah, so Project Monarch was, uh, you know, all about they were trying to figure out tra- trauma-based mind control. But through this, they realized that intergenerational trauma would make somebody much more sus- susceptible, and so. Uh, the families, yeah, some of them willingly went in, but some of them were already wounded from their trauma. 
So, you know, with what's the, the very cliche saying is like hurt people, hurt people, healed mm-hmm. people, you know, heal people. And uh, so a lot of times they're they're right byproduct of already being a victim of, you know, the intergenerational trauma and therefore they perpetuate the cycle. And that's what these studies were done on. It was how, you know, what would the ramifications be and how could we create, they were looking at particular one of the, the main things they were looking at was dissociative personality disorder. And they found that uh, somebody was much more likely to dissociate, which makes them a really great asset, um, you know, because they have these various alters and they might not remember what they did in another alter. A great movie that's out right now uh, that really touched on this and they actually talk about MKUltra. Uh, they, they, they use the term and they say that that's what's happening, uh, but it's called Argyle. And uh, this is, you know, she has these different alters. And that's what they found is that people who have an IQ over 120, so they would select for over 120, were much more likely to dissociate. It's just the brain's way of coping with trauma, but they were more likely, those who had experienced trauma were more likely, uh, those who had experienced intergenerational or neuter trauma. There were a couple of other factors, but those are the main ones. And so I think that that's uh, something that, so uh, when you were asking about, do they keep it in the family? Like w- with these, you know, music figures, I think Hollywood is, is applicable here too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And I think they do. I think it's, I, so I think it's both. I don't think it's, do they just self-select or does it also just happen to occur? You've got somebody who's already in the system and they have a child. Likely that child has shared genetics. They might also have talent, um, but they already have that training. You know, they've been around it. Uh, it's easier to groom them. So, so I think it's a combination. I mean, you, you just look at people like, uh, you know, Miley Cyrus or, <laughs> right? I, I think that might be a good example right now. Or even Taylor Swift. Uh, you know, her parents weren't in the industry per se, but they were in the banking industry. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I think... It's all the industry really, isn't it? <laughs> kind of. I mean, I think in that case it is because, uh, you know, I think... I, and I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I read that she's actually directly related to, uh, you know, one of the Federal Reserve founders. So wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, I wonder then if, do you think that when we see the psychedelic movement hit the the grand scale, which you could say maybe even culminated with, say, like a Woodstock in many ways, do you think oh, yeah, that which- is is the attempt to bring like what they, the experiments, the smaller scale experiments with like Monarch and Ultra, are we just now implanting that onto the masses, taking it to the next level? Oh yeah. No, I think that's exactly what that it was. Um, I think that, yeah, they're, they do these individual testing and then they extrapolate it from there. It's, it's, it's a way of figuring out how to control the masses, but yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, What's his name? Uh, Daniel Estelin has the Tavistock Institute book. And he has a whole section on the Age of Aquarius Woodstock Music Festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he goes into the Age of Aquarian conspiracy later. Um, but yeah, I, I think Woodstock was absolutely a total CIA Tavistock experiment. 
And it's yeah. it's funny. I mean, well, maybe not so funny because I we uh, my wife and I recently watched the documentary on Woodstock '99. I was at yeah. Woodstock '99 as a 19, oh, as a 19 year old person who should not have been anywhere near this place. I now realize in hindsight, um, <laughs> but luckily I got out of there alive. And I, I'm really lucky actually that I had a like who you, well, you might one a, a good friend of mine that came with us. There was like me and another friend that were kind of let's just say maniacs, and we were doing Woodstock things there. And another friend of mine who was like just wanted to. Watch the music and then was smart enough to realize by like Sunday, like we should probably leave. This is not a place we should be anymore. So su- we actually left Sunday before the fires and before, um, before I, I, yeah, I think there were some fires the night before. before yeah, I the, think before, there were. Yeah, there, yeah, we were there for, I think the, the chili peppers fire thing, but then the, the real crazy stuff was like oh, the next right. day was, was overnight and the next day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, when I, when we were watching that back, I was just thinking to myself, like all I could think was, this is not a series of they, I mean, the documentary is portrayed as like, Oh, we just had really bad planning. Oh, we just didn't. And I'm just thinking like, no, there's no way like this. This very much seemed to me like a mass psychological experiment. Today's episode is sponsored by Fox and Sons coffee. And let me just tell you, Steven of Fox and Sons, he is not just an advertiser. He has been a supporter of this show from day one. And frankly, since before day one, because he came over with me from the old Lions and Liberty days. So true fan, of the show. He started this company, Fox and Sons, out of his love for coffee and really out of wanting to further bond with his sons and spend time with him, just like he shared time with his father drinking coffee. Uh, He also gets to teach his sons about entrepreneurship and business through this endeavor. So I'm so happy to have Steven and really his whole family, the Fox and the Sons, the whole gang as supporters and sponsors of this show. Not only that, his beans are so high quality, fresh. Look, I just got two new bags right here. I got the Mexican and my favorite, the Den Blend Dark. The beans are super high quality, fresh and sourced from small organic farms, fair trade. None of this GMO garbage. They're all small batch roasted. This is high quality stuff. Subscriptions are by far the best way to get your coffee. I have a couple subscriptions going, uh, but that is the way to go. You never run out that way. I never run out. I always have my supply of Fox and Sons. So I want you to head over to foxandsons.com. Put in your order today. They ship fast. They ship now through the end of February. Also, by the way, you're going to get free shipping on any order over $37.99. By the way, while you're there, use discount code MCS to get 18% off any order over $25. Stephen Fox is a great man, a great friend, great supporter of the show. I encourage you to check out his coffee over at foxandsons.com. Where they're putting a bunch of kids in here and they're hiring, they're getting a bunch of bands who, for the most part, you know, you have like Wyclef, who's like kind of, but most of the bands were very aggressive types of music, yeah. uh, especially the headlining acts that were towards the end of each night. And so, you, you know, they have terrible facilities. They're running out of water. When they can get water, it's like they, they, they kept jacking the prices of water up. I remember this. You, first it was four, then it was eight, then it was 12 because they kept you know getting the supplies kept dwindling and dwindling. And the place was just like a war zone. Now, I was too um, I was too much having fun to really realize how probably bad it really was at the time. Right. Uh, again, thank God we had a more level-headed person that, to get us out of there before, <laughs> I think, before things just became uh, a total disaster. But all I could think was like this, what really put it over the top for me was when they bring out these candles uh, the, uh, during the Chili Peppers concert because they want to do uh, this this candlelight vigil. And the way they, they talk to Anthony, they show Anthony Kiedis and they're like, oh yeah, we just decided to go play this, this Jimi Hendrix fire song. And they're singing, let me stand next to your fire. And of course, everyone starts lighting fires and the fire starts spreading. All I can think, there's, there's no way 
that that was just a random song that they sang innocently no. like, and, and right before all the fires and everything happened. And then it just continued. I mean, to, and they kind of portray it all as well. The bands were just in the moment. And I, I don't even know if Anthony Kiedis is literally thinking I should sing this song about fire now, but someone is thinking it. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, that song was planned at the same time people were going to have access to a bunch of fire. Yeah, I don't think so either. That That's wow. I remember that. I didn't go. I barely but, remember it, but yeah. <laughs> you barely remember it. Well, I remember it was happening, but I was not there. Yeah, I, um, I, I remember it was happening and I was there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, really, it really made me, it kind of weirded me out because I was like, wow, I was part of a mass psychological operation. I'm, I'm fairly certain. Uh, yeah, I think and, that was definitely a mass psychological operation for sure. Yeah, so I mean, if that one was, it, it certainly makes sense that the, the first one was, but it becomes so clear when you oh, watch yeah. the documentary and you, and you see, see, I mean, Again, they don't they don't portray it as as any kind of operation at all, but I I have to think it was, especially seeing how all the things that they did that would so obviously just make put people in a worse place that would just so obviously um ins- you know get people riled up and fired up. I mean, people were getting dehydrated, they didn't have food, they didn't have shelter, they didn't have water, and then we put in aggressive music that that speaks about violence and fighting against the man, um rage against the machine. People were screaming, "Fuck you! I won't do what you tell me." While they're knocking down towers, I'm like, this is just so obvious to me that I I'm just I'm glad I got out alive. I guess. Yeah, I'm glad you got out alive too. <laughs> I remember I went to a Snowesis concert and there was like this huge, it was on a mountain. So it had snow and people were snowboarding and skiing. Um, and it was an Oasis concert. But I remember there was a huge mosh pit and my friends wanted to go up to the very front of the mosh pit. And uh, some guy like picked me up and threw me onto a big pile of snow. And he told me that I was about to be stepped on and no longer exist. <laughs> So it was apparently pretty dangerous. Or was but he saving you? He was like throwing you to the. He thought he was saving me. Well, I was uh, like doing his best. WTF? Yeah. I mean, I'm like thrown onto a big pile of snow. He's like, no, I saved your life. You you were about to cease to. Well, be. he might have. You might have been. Yeah, you might have been crushed by a, a sea of people. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, um, I can read this to you because this is yeah. Let me. So the man credited with Woodstock's creation was Artie. Kornfeld, the director of Capitol Records, which owned EMI. Remember, EMI, led by aristocrat Sir Joseph Lockwood, stands for Electric Musical Industries and, unknown to most, is one of Britain's largest producers of military electronics, a key member of Britain's military intelligence establishment. As a military contractor to the British War Office, and Tavistock was very instrumental in the, uh, the War Office's um, furthermore, EMI's silent partner is another major record label, RCA. Uh, RCA was also uh, Circo. Circo is like this huge, uh, like government contractor. They they were they have contracts with like the SES and uh, obviously RCA. They were RCA, and they're like all over. It's a you know, British company, but they have government contracts are all over the United States. Um, so EMI silent partner, major record label RCA, which was also active in military space, electronics, and satellite communication. Classic example example of what President Dwight Eisenhower would have called a military industrial complex. But it is really the world one the one world government solidifying everything into fewer and fewer hands. The money for Woodstock was supplied by John Roberts, the heir of the large Pennsylvania based block drugs pharmaceutical empire and toothpaste manufacturing fortune. Joel Roseman, one of the three partners, writes, 
As the concert neared, food and water were clearly going to be in short supply. Sanitary facilities overtaxed, temper short, drugs overabundant. Worst of all, there was no way for anyone who wanted to, to leave, which is a perfect environment for a psychological operation. That's about the first Woodstock? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because then that's even more mind-blowing because that that is all the same mistakes they made at the second one also making it so no one could leave i mean it's like wow <laughs> yeah well i'm sure um <laughs> yeah i i'm sure that they were trying to replicate a lot of the same yeah you know same uh study so and g- g- going to woodstock was such a, a a fantasy for like a teenager growing up and like listening to because I, I got into that music as a teenager i got into like all of that 70s and and you know rock i did and that too sort of stuff. yeah so then like hearing about that's probably what drove me to again now now i'm just analyzing my own my own psychological operations here like now i'm just thinking of course i was told to love that music and worship that time because then when they put out woodstock 99 i was like of course i'm gonna go to woodstock 99 and yeah, I, I was, I, I'm surprised I didn't. I think I, I think I probably couldn't. Like I was probably doing something at that time, but I, I totally was into all that music. I went to the Grateful Dead concert. I went to his last one six hmm. months before Jerry Garcia died. So, yeah, I've been to I, well, I've been to Fish concerts, but they're they're pretty chill. They're concert. pretty chill. So I, mean, I, I, I will like say fish that is more chill. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I went to quite a few. Fish Can we pretend fish is legit? Can we pretend? I mean, I'm not really a fish fan, but I, I want to think someone out there is just a good artist who got popular by their art and not because... Well, I think, <laughs> you know, what I always say, CIA art is really good. That's why it's effective. I, that's true. Yeah. You know, that that's it has to be good. That's part of why the freedom movement, when they, I don't know what else to call them, but I wouldn't call them like right wing or like just the freedom movement. But when they do art... It typically sucks because they forget that it has to be good and they focus on being activists. You, you need to reverse it. <laughs> like, and it, it makes me wonder too, like, is good music actually good? Is it good or is it, is it that they figured out how do you design music in ways that please our brains and yes. ways that suck us in. So therefore we remember that music and we think it's good, but is yeah, it, no, is it that, absolutely. yeah. Is it that it's not that it's, it's good. It's that it's, 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 pro- well, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's formulaic. Exactly. It's formulaic. Exactly. Uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, the Billy Joel song, uh, entertainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole line. He says, if you want to make a hit, you got to make it fit. And so they cut it down to three Oh five. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, it's a formula, it, the beat, the chorus, like the, the, it, yeah, the way it's structured, the whole thing is a formula. And who's going to music and who's going to be better at figuring out the formula than people that have, you know, been conducting high level military operations and this sort of thing. So it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes sense. <laughs> they, they, they've mastered it. Yeah. They've really mastered it. But I think that whole era, the counterculture really was largely about drugs. Um, you know, I think the Beatles were a little bit different because uh, that was a little bit more about hysteria. I think they were trying to, you know, a lot of those, uh, the testing was on like mass hysteria and how to create mass hysteria and hypnosis. Um, there were, there are, uh, I have read a lot on uh, the Beatles and Tavistock Connection. They, they talk a lot about that. Like, how do they hypnotize a, a mass population? Um, how do you create a mass hysteria? Um, how do you mind control, you know, a large group? Uh, so I think that's largely what their purpose was, but yeah. 
what are do you, can you kind of detail what some of the like hypnosis stuff with the Beatles is? Are there actual you know songs you can think of where they're? I don't know if the songs. I think it has more to do with them in person. I mean, like there's never been a, if you look throughout history, I mean, people are fanatics with, you know, pop stars, but prior to the Beatles, there had never been that kind of hysteria. Mm. I mean, it was very hypnotic. I don't know specifically what the techniques they used to create that hypnosis were. I don't know if it had to do with the, like, you know, sound waves or, you know, I, I really don't know. But that, that I think, is what they were experimenting with. Of of taking it and making it so, like, maybe just like music, it's like we're going to figure out the formula for not just mm-hmm. making someone become famous, but making it so you become infatuated with these people and so you're obsessed with them. And this is another way. When we have you attached to something, we can then then we can sort of lead you around. Yeah, I mean, that that's really what it looks like. There had never been that kind of hysteria prior to, I mean, I wasn't around for the Beatles, but when you watch the, the videos and you watch the the concerts, the way that people were acting, you know, like I, I it was like people just like throwing themselves at the stage. And I mean, it was really on, almost like they were under a trance. I, I think they've done a lot of experiments like since then, People have all sorts of theories about what was it, Astro? I'm, why am I blanking? Oh, uh, Astro World. The the yes, um, Astro World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Travis Scott. Yeah. Travis Scott, exactly. Uh, so I mean, they've definitely done things since then, but I think that was one of the first uh, of that kind at that time. So, yeah. What? Whereas the, people like the Grateful Dead and you know some of the others, that was much more about drugs. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and then there was, of course, like a lot of the music had very much, um, which is sort of ironic, but maybe not. It had this sort of anti-war, anti-establishment bent, and I, I used to think to myself, well, why would the establishment want want to have anti-war stuff? Like they want the wars, don't they? But then you realize it's like, oh no, they want you to think they want mom and dad, regular sort of conservative American folks, to think anti-war. That's those crazy fucking hippies I just saw at Woodstock, like fucking each other in the middle of these fields and whatnot. So yeah, if that's anti-war, hell no. Right. So that's 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 what I would think. It's it's more of discrediting the anti-war movement. Well, and it's also uh, I think it's also dialectical. They they want mm-hmm. tension. So they right. want people protesting. Uh, they want people fighting. They want uh, generations fighting with each other. So it's a great way to break up the family. Uh, you know, you have the kids uh, who are so wise and evolved and they're fighting against war. Mom, dad, you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've already brainwashed the parents to say, well, we have to have war, right? Because uh, that's how we get peace. That's what they told us. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's a responsible thing to do. This was a quote from... Uh, uh, Aldous Huxley, and he uh, went, this was, was a quote from him at the Tavistock Group, California Medical School in 1961. He says, there will be in the next generation or so a, pharma- a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude. This is a pretty famous, you've probably heard it, but it's very, this is what I think the whole counterculture movement was all about. And producing dictatorship without tears, so to speak. Producing kind of painless concentration camp for entire society so that people will, in fact, have their liberties taken away from them, but will rather enjoy it because they will be mm. distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda or brainwashing or brainwashing enhanced by pharmacological methods. And this seems to be the final revolution. Now, 
And I think there is where we could also tie this into, and all of these things are ultimately inseparable, uh, the psychedelics, uh, mm-hmm. the anti-war stuff, and then the new age aspect of this, which always keeps coming back into play here. Uh, and I, 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 it's really hard to, to disconnect all these things. Cause I think when you, you know, when you kind of zoom out, they all do sort of move, move you in the same direction. They create more tension. Uh, they create uh, more psychological issues. I would, I would think in yeah. the indiv- individuals themselves. Well, they and, also blur boundaries and that's right. a huge goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when I, I mean this, and speaking of blurring boundaries, I mean, I, we kind of went on a, a, a a cult documentary sort of spree in my house in the last few months. We just got oh, on a roll you? of watching all these different documentaries about various cults. I'm sure some of which are their own propaganda as well. So it's like, I'm all, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know how we are at this point, you can never, you always have to look for the, you know, how am I being played here? Uh, but it's interesting because that is always a first step and a lot with cults and it's always starts very innocently ish. It's always just one thing to get out of your comfort zone or something like mm-hmm. that. And then they'll just say, well, look, you gotta, you gotta be able to break your boundaries and, and you know, and, and whatnot. And of course, inevitably breaking your boundaries it always ends up with the evidence to had to have sex with the leader of the cult at some point you know it's like that's it you know, we told you about breaking boundaries but it's true they do it on a, a small level once you can ba- break your boundaries maybe if you're breaking your boundaries at woodstock or whatnot you're the same person that can later be manipulated to jab your children exactly which is pretty literal i think in in, in the case of the woodstock generation looking towards now yeah well and tavstock was very instrumental in uh it was like one of the first to, to coin that term, world citizen. And that's, mm. you know, obviously we're seeing that come to play today. And they did, it was in the 90s, but they did smart cards experiment. And that was, a, I mean, they're doing, they're really doing it through education now. Uh, that's part of that whole universal choice education program. Smart cards? Yeah. What is, what is that? Uh, it, was a, it was a way of kind of like tracking kids uh, to give them a universal passport. You needed these smart cards, yeah. But it was a, a way of like figuring out where they would be in the world uh, employment system. So, yeah, it sounds super. like a a caste system kind of thing. Like, oh, it looks like doesn't it? A, it's like you'll be a middle class. Uh, you'll be like a plumber or something. Here you go. Here's well, and it, when you read works of like Charlotte Isabitten, who was a whistleblower under Reagan, actually, yeah, yeah. and her father was uh, Skull and Bones, um, she talks about it. She talks about how that was part of their plan with the education system. John Taylor Gatto talks about it. Anthony Sutton, in his book uh, on the Order of Skull and Bones, he talks about how the order took over education. He talks about it. But Tavistock actually did an experiment. Um, it was a. Uh, it was when, during the nineties they create a new journal it was called evaluation <laughs> um and uh yeah they created smart cards and it was uh for competence accreditation so it was a way of kind of tracking um you know and i guess standardizing your your skills yeah they carried it out in the US and parts of Europe the project involved in assessing validating students skills with information placed on personal skills smart cards, which would become real passports to employment. The implication, of course, is that without this real passport, no one will be employed. This is all about creating a global citizen because that's what what they were trying to do is, and they're still trying to do it. The whole plan is to, you know, create kind of like a a globalized workforce 
and, you know, figure out where you can be a cog in this global machine. And that is very much like a big message of the the hippie New Age movement is that we're all citizens of the world, the earth is all ours, worlds beyond borders, all this stuff, which to, used to sound great to me when I was a kid until you realize why they want all that and what that what that really entails. Well, there's a, so, you know, the Lucius Trust and that's Alice Bailey's uh, brainchild. And of course she was a theosophist. There they are with the, the not so subtle Lucifer reference. <laughs> well, it was Lucifer Publishing. <laughs> okay, and then so a that, year later, yeah, yeah. That, it was very on the nose, but that's that didn't go over so well. The they, nose, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they changed it like a year later and they changed it to Lucius Trust. Lucifer's trust. <laughs> We're going to tone this down just, just a notch, just a, but just stay a on the same general track. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they are a consultancy to the UN, and they're kind of like the religious, spiritual, if you will, underpinnings for the UN. And there's all sorts of subsets under there. There's like the Arcane uh, Institute, which is their education uh, section. But they're really not being subtle with these, the Arcane. No, <laughs> not at all. It's like a super villain <laughs> organization or something. Um, but they have a festival every uh, seven years, and it's called the uh, the World Servers. Uh, it's festival week and it's where uh, world servers get together and they literally call them world servers. Yeah, this is right on the website, uh, on the UN's website. It's uh, under the Lucius Trust. On so they're website. still having their own Woodstocks. I wonder, I wonder if they're nearly as fun. Probably not. The world servers doesn't sound nearly as, so. as exciting it anyway. Doesn't sound as fun to me. <laughs> um, I, I just want to touch on as well, like what other, we've talked a lot about, about music, but what other mm -hmm. aspects of culture can we see this influence in besides the probably obvious answer of everywhere, but maybe more specifically so, because I mean, I, I was thinking about even innocent stuff that, and I don't know if this stuff is directly Tavistock related, but anything mm -hmm. that's not directly is probably indirectly, but like even just thinking back to the 90s and like the sitcoms I used to watch in the 90s, I feel like the sitcoms before that were, there was a lot of sitcoms about about the family and showing a nice family unit like and whatnot. And then at some point in the 90s, like the most, the most popular sitcoms were Seinfeld and Friends, which were my yep. favorite shows at the time. And they sure. both hold up pretty well now. But even now when I'm watching them, I still laugh at the jokes. But like I, I started to see a lot of the greater messaging. And it seems like the real thing that they were both of those shows were really showing is like it's better to be single. Uh, it's better to have kids out of wedlock. Divorce is great and normal. Um, mm -hmm. and this and that. There was no happily married couples that ever existed. If there was a couple that was like in love, like a Ross and Rachel, they're always going to be having sex with other people. They're always going to be yeah. cheating. They're always going to be. And you never saw displays of just people getting married and having a fa family. And, th and that was just not what was popular. And maybe it's a you know, we can argue all day whether it's, you know, a, a, where the feedback begins. Is it that reflects the culture and that's why it's there? Or is it because that's what we want, where we want the culture to go? And I do feel like it it definitely made me think like, I don't, I'm not saying friends is what made me, you know, not get married until my forties, but uh, it probably didn't hurt because it made me think, oh yeah, this is what normal people do. They stay single, they they party, they live, they live in the city and they don't need to get married. And, and I, I mean, I definitely, it definitely helped normalize that idea for me, I would think. Oh, I agree. I totally agree. I, I always say that I think Sex in the City had like the worst impact, particularly on women. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was definitely this message that like you could buy, uh, you could spend your rent on Manolo Blahnik's shoes. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the message, one of the big messages of the show. And it seems really silly, like who would actually do that? I have friends who literally did that and they'd be in debt and they'd be struggling to pay their rent because they bought like Jimmy Choo's and Manolo Blahniks. And 
Yeah, exactly. But that that was really because they were watching the show that taught them that. And yeah, it totally created this messaging that, uh, you know, women can be promiscuous and, you know, well into their middle age and that they would be happier that way. Um, It created, I think it was really feminist propaganda. And I don't think that it served people. I think that people really ended up much on much more unhappy as a result of it. But I think that you're absolutely right. I think that the messaging of all of these shows in the nineties was definitely Tavistock propaganda. One of the main goals of Tavistock was to destroy the family. Uh, They wanted to overthrow Christianity. They wanted to destroy the family and they were uh, very instrumental in the feminist movement as well, because they thought that that was a big conduit to both overthrowing Christianity as well as mostly Christian values. I think that's what they were uh, concerned with more than like the institution of Christianity. Um, and then, of course, to, if feminism was a great way to destroy the family um, and to depopulate, right? Because if you have a uh, People not getting married, delaying, uh, you know, any kind of uh, family creation. Yeah. So did, did Tavistock, I, I I just imagine the answer is going to be yes to everything on this stuff. But <laughs> does, does, does Tavistock play a role considering their sort of medical, the way they push medical stuff? Do they have a role in the introduction of birth control? Uh, because that is something that I, I've really in my later, in my recent mm-hmm. years in life, I had my, my wife having come off birth control a few years ago and seeing the difference in her, it made me realize like, oh my God, you're putting teenagers on this. I mean, because now they just give it to girls when they're 15 if they have acne. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this will regulate. And now they're just on this drug for the rest of, probably for a lot, at least a lot of their adult life until they go to have kids. And I, I got to imagine it, it for many women, it probably means they don't have kids because may, maybe probably they just stay on it for a certain amount of time and it messes up their system a lot. You hear a lot more about, um, you know, difficulty with pregnancies than now than you did 20, 30 years ago. So I, I do wonder how many women just end up not ever having successful pregnancies because they got on birth control so early. Yeah. Wow. That's the, you actually noticed a difference in your wife when she went off of it. Huge. Luckily, in the good, luckily it was a good, because I mean, I've heard, I've heard stories the other way. I've heard, I've heard stories where people like are no longer attracted to each other because they, the wife, you know, was on all these hormones. So they were attracted to this kind of person. So it worked out fine on, the, on that end, but definitely like much, much better. It helped. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I don't want to get into details here, but it, no, it's no, good. No, we, all agree, we all agree. Yeah, okay. we all agree. It was a, a positive, it was a positive, a positive thing. thing. But it was never even, we never even thought, or she never really thought about it before as a, Obviously, we know the hormones all, all affect everything, but I mean, just it's just night and day. And then it really dawned on her, like, oh my god, I've been taking. I never even thought about th- not taking this because doctors just give it to you, like it's no big deal. Like it's just it's what you're supposed to take, even even if you're right. not, to, even if you're not 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 having sex. Right, right. And then there's a huge push for that. So I I don't know, like directly Tavistock, but I would definitely say at least indirectly because you know we talked about the uh, the medical hygiene. Uh, Institute. We talked about the uh, mental hygiene. Then there was the uh, psychic, psychic social institute. Uh, there was the psychical institute, and then there was the psychology. I think it was was it the medical psychology institute. It was something like that. But these people were all eugenicists, and they were all tied into you know the birth control movement. That was. You know, that was Bill Gates's father. That was uh, Margaret Sanger. 
And the, I mean, they were very overt about it when they created it. I mean, it was it, that now they tout it as this great, you know, healing product that all, it, and you're absolutely right. They, it's, they put all teenagers on it. I mean, it's like what they push for almost everyone. You know, any woman who comes in in childbearing years, if they're either not, either don't want to get pregnant or they're dealing with some sort of a hormonal issue, which today it seems like. Which is probably every teenager. <laughs> right, right. Um, like every teenager, but it's like, oh, you're having acne. Oh, wait, you you weren't happy today. <laughs> or, you know, I, I, like I'm being absurd, but to make the point because. So we could yeah, either give you this everything. birth control or have you considered you're trapped in the wrong body? <laughs> right, right, right. It's right. got to be one of these things. It's got to be one of the two. So either we'll give you this pill to sterilize you or we will uh, just castrate you and sterilize you that way. One or the other, you know, take your pick. Um, so I, I don't know. I can't say that it was like part of a, an overarching Tavistock mission, but there's a lot of overlap between the people who were under Tavistock. And, uh, you know, yeah, these different well, one organizations of those, have those. It, it does sound like one of those things where um, it's it's like you don't always need the direct conspiracy because they're all moving in the same direction. So if if all these people come from the same, whether it's specifically Tavistock or it's one of the organizations that, they, that they're all connected to, they all share the same philosophy. They all want yes. to move the world in the same direction. So they don't need to have a smoke-filled room meeting to put iron out all the details. They already agree. So they're going to go into their institutions and their various positions of power and implement what they already already agree on so you don't always need yes. to have the you know the evidence of the meeting because well, you don't even would, need the meeting i would say that it is even more direct than that though because these different organizations like the mental hygiene you know the medical hygiene the uh, psychical institute all of these do have overlap and they were all eugenicists and they sure. all did work with Tavistock so right. and I, the, I just mean I'm more of the general the general cultural but in general aspects. I agree yeah. although when you talk about the smoke filled room that, that's so funny because I remember I'm, I'm blanking on which musician it was but it was like a whistle blowing video um, and he talked about Tavistock approaching him and like having this whole meeting um, that like to probably yeah it was a smoke filled <laughs> room and it was like yeah um and it was it, it, to push propaganda i'm blanking i'm sure i'll remember as soon as i get off um but if, if i, I do, ever got pulled aside and to, and to talk to you about like helping create some propaganda i i would be like where is the smoke i there you better give me a, come on at least give me the smoke <laughs> in the room <laughs> yeah exactly um, courtney is there anything are there any other areas that, or any other just maybe general facts about Tavistock or things we haven't covered that are just important things to know before before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for people to, I know people get real, they love to hear about like the entertainment stuff. And with the entertainment stuff, I will just say a couple of quick things is that, you know, they did all of these experiments as the technology increased. So as it advanced, like there was the whole uh, radio experiment uh, you know, with the very famous like War on the Worlds, H.G. Wells, they did that whole experiment that was connected to Tavistock. And that was uh, under Rockefeller. Uh, he his roommate was he was that uh, his roommate was a uh, what was it? Cantrill was uh, was Rockefeller doc, at Dartmouth. And that was all about like, you know, mass psychosis and what would the impact of, uh, you know, some sort of a crisis be on the masses. So, they, and that was interesting because they did the experiment and, and this was how radio would impact people and the, the psychology of radio, I think is what, what it was called. But the, 
it was interesting because they didn't release the result. Rockefeller wouldn't let him re- release the results for two years. And there's two or three years. And then they did. They released it later. Uh, then a few years later, when television came out, they did the same kind of like psychological experiments with television. What would the impacts of tele- television be on psychology? And then, of course, they later use it to create specific type of shows. And they have all these liaisons. They did, they did it with film as well. Um, and they have all these liaisons. And through like the CIA, if you just go to their website, right out like in the open, it's very transparent. It's one of their front pages. They have a film liaison. And they talk, they advertise like all the shows that they've worked with, like television shows, film shows, uh, film movies uh, that they've consulted with. So it's very overt. You know, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is uh, out in the open, very public knowledge. Well, people will uh, say they're just getting like advice on what it really looks like in this situation or that situation. And it's not that they're coming in and telling us what to do, but it's probably probably a little bit of that too. uh, Yeah, no, it it is. And and it's very traceable. I mean, that is not like hidden. They, they, they've been pretty transparent on that. Um, So that, and and of course we, we've seen Tavistock works with, uh, the CIA and they, you know, work directly with the, the, you know, film liaison, the radio back then. Um, so I'll say that, but they're one of their main missions has always been through like wartime research. Um, and it's always under the guise of wartime research. And I think that's important for people to understand because so much of what gets weaponized against the masses is wartime research. And of course, you know, under you know, psychological research, like that's where we get a lot of this psychological warfare and all the psyops that get unleashed. Uh, but it's not just psychological warfare. I mean, it's a, you know, biological warfare. Um, it was, they did that whole bombing experiment out of Germany. Uh, this was Tavistock. And that was the, uh, like kind of the precursor to Operation Phoenix in, uh, you know, Vietnam. Uh, was it Vietnam or Korea? But Operation Phoenix. Um, and that was, I'm going to look it up because I can't what is believe the, it. What is the German experiment? It was a bombing experiment to what? see how, like, like they bombed civilians to see how, uh, if people would be, uh, how the people would be impacted, the, the, the trauma. Oh, you mean like during World War II? Yes, during oh, yeah, World yeah, War II. Yeah, right. When they would intentionally, yeah, exactly. Okay. I didn't realize right. that was, okay, that's interesting. I mean, I, I knew about those bombing campaigns, but I didn't realize that they were, done in the with the idea of experiment as much as just like we're going to kill people because it's war and that's what we're doing it was vietnam operation phoenix yeah i I thought so yeah but that was but that bombing experiment was a precursor (sighs) to operation phoenix and it was to see how civilian populations reacted to very obvious attacks on just civilians exactly wow 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 i know so i think somehow that's even worse than just killing them to kill them it is. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think that's really important for people to understand that, like, I know people get really, like, you know, they're fascinated by the whole culture war. And that's obviously it's really important. But um, but it's a lot of this underground military research is what they're involved in. And that does end up getting weaponized against the people. And even these this culture war stuff came out of military research. A lot of the culture war came out of uh, research done uh, on the Cold War. I mean, they use like, you know, impressionistic art uh, and, uh, well, you know, like all this is like kind of degenerative art mm-hmm. as a, a, you know, way of psyoping <laughs> during the Cold War. So, yeah, so even even that was wartime research. 
but yeah, I think their goal now, I mean, people do know now that they're uh, working, they're pushing all of this transgender stuff, but they're also really working on the transhuman stuff. So I think that's less, uh, less visible. It's like I said, they, they did a bunch of symposiums and they were advertising them and then they deleted it. I can't find it anymore. So that's curious too. Interesting. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining me, not just uh, today, but also uh, for the first part we did. I think this has been a pretty comprehensive look at Tavistock. Again, like for it just, and maybe this is why, because like you said, I didn't realize it was very recent that the name started coming out with, with and related specifically to that transition. So that's probably why I just noticed hearing it a lot in the last couple of years. But it, this has really, I guess, been the genesis of people is, I guess it's been a way for people to really point the finger at, at maybe the hidden hand between a lot of what people could make connections to before, but now they can say, well, look, we can all point it right back to this, this same place. Yeah. And they have so many different, their tentacles everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I was trying to research some of their shell organizations, they've got like Tavistock, like funding groups. They've got um, like Tavistock architecture groups. Um, and I think that's part of a PSYOP too. I'm sure that they're doing research. I mean, brutalist uh, architecture was part of a PSYOP to depress people, demoralize people. I'm sure they're working on various types of architecture and infrastructure to figure out how to manipulate. Any architecture after 1950 feels like a PSYOP to me. Cause I feel like the only time I see anything nice around any city is when I'm like, Oh, that's a nice old building. I mean, I never say that about a new building. No. Well, I think they're rarely, been, I um, say, yeah, rarely, 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 but yeah. So they have so many different like, you know, subgroups and sub, you know, uh, shell companies and, and some not shell company, but it just, it's really hard to trace all of the tentacles. But when you look at the, the funding for them, I mean, it really does seem to all go back to the same people. It's the, you know, the crown, the Milners, the, the Rothschild, the Rockefellers, certainly the Rockefellers gave them that very big grant in 1947, uh, for them to become the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations. And, uh, yeah. So it's kind of all the same players, but yeah, I think that that covers like a sliver, but yeah. A sliver, right, right. Like I said, we, we could, you could probably have a daily podcast uh, to dive into all the different areas that uh, Tavistock has uh, had their hands in. But oh. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me. Before I uh, mm-hmm. before we jump over into, uh, I think if you have time, we'll jump over to the smoke-filled room for yeah, a minute. It's sure. our own smoke-filled room. Uh, but uh, feel free to just plug away on everything you got. Of course, the Courtney Turner program, and I think you're doing about 22 podcasts a day now, so. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Maybe not quite that many, but it does feel like that. Uh, it's, yeah, CourtneyTurner.com. And I spell my name a little differently. So it's like Courtney, C O U R T E N A Y, T U R N E R.com. And yeah, you can find everything, all the links to my different social medias and all the podcast That's the easiest there. thing to do now. Just get the one name, just make the website your name and say everything's there instead of naming a bunch yes. of things. That's what I did too. It's a lot easier. Uh, Courtney, thank you so much. And I'll see you over in the smoke filled room. Awesome. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And remember, if you're listening here on the public feed, that means you're only getting about two-thirds of the conversation because every one of these interviews goes approximately 30 minutes longer in what is called the Smoke-Filled Room bonus segment. To get the complete version of every episode, just become a subscriber to The Mark Claire Show. You can do so on Patreon, on Subscribestar, on Rockfin. You can find all the links you need over at markclaire.com. That's markclaire, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Until next time, my friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.